I've kind of had a unique uh, opportunity for an Air Force career. Not many folks get to stay in the very same career for their entire Air Force, or the same field for their entire Air Force. Those of you Air Force veterans out there, as you bounce from base to base to command and command, sometimes seemingly at the whim of the Air Force, not necessarily the number one item on your, on your choice list, but you kind of went where you were assigned. Well, I had the unique opportunity to stay in the same mission. Now that mission changed and evolved and it grew significantly. New airplanes were assigned to the unit. So the mission wasn't static, but it certainly was still focused on airlift to the polar regions and meeting our national needs uh, for airlift in those areas of the world. I want to take you back a little bit in history to kind of bring you forward to how we got into the ski business to begin with. If you think back, uh, a number of years, the political world of the 1950s, today we talk about our main threat being terrorism. As we remember the threats that we were experiencing back then, the th main threat we were concerned about was Soviet bombers flying over and dropping bombs on us. And so we were concerned that we would be able to defend ourselves against that threat. In order to defend yourself, we needed to have an early warning of when that threat might be imminent. And also, we generally tend to think of our world in an equatorial sense. We think of distance between points around the equator. But if you think about the distance between the Soviet Union and potential targets in the United States, the shortest distance between those two points is what? Over the pole, not around the equator as we typically think. So as we begin to look at this early warning system, that would give us a warning of this impending threat and it's, uh, it's facing us. We developed a line of radar stations between us and the Russians looking up to the North Polar regions. And we call that line of radar stations the Dew Line for a distant early warning, the Dew Line. Well, the Dew Line was gonna work fine as we looked at the Earth from the polar perspective once again. We see the Soviet Union, we see the targets, potential targets over here in the United States, and we can see that that short distance is right over the poles. We look a little bit closer, we'll kind of follow the track of the dew line stations and the radar stations as they were established. Let's start over here way out in the Alaska Aleutian Islands. We'll come up the Aleutian Islands across Canada, across Alaska, across Arctic Canada, and come right on around to Greenland and across Greenland. And we began building these radar stations uh, along that line, the dew line. Well, it was working pretty well until we got over here to the Greenland ice cap and we had a little bit of a problem. Well, we could put a station on one side of the cap, a station on the other side of the cap, but what about the big expanse in between? Now, these stations were generally about 200 miles apart. So if one radar station was disabled, the two adjoining stations would have overlapping coverage and we'll still have radar coverage. But over the ice cap, we couldn't use the same construction techniques and, and service them in the same way. So how are we gonna go about building these stations on the, radar, on the Greenland ice cap? So this, this, the bright idea came up, let's put some skis on a C-130 and see how that will work and fly them out there and see if we can do it that way. So we began to develop, or we developed the C-130D model. 
Now, the B model was the last 12 A model C-130s coming off the production line. The B model had already been designed and developed. So the Air Force took the last 12 D model airplanes, modified them with this ski system, and designated them the C-130D. They were assigned initially to the 61st Troop Carrier Squadron at Seward Air Force Base, Tennessee. In later years, that mission would move to Dias Air Force Base in Texas, and eventually up to Elmendorf Air Force Base in Alaska, where they remained for a number of years. The first ski birds were tested right here in the States on Lake Bemidji in, in Minnesota. And construction on the, the Dew Line Station, the two uh, stations on the Greenland Ice Cap, began in 1959. Let's talk a little bit about this island of Greenland. Our main staging base for this operation was going to be in Sonderstrom. Sonderstrom had been established back in World War II uh, as Bluey West 8. It was used as a rescue and recovery location for aircraft transiting to and from Europe that went down on the Greenland ice cap from time to time. First, the uh, commander of, of uh, the base was Bernd Balkan, a famous Arctic uh, aviator and Air Force uh, member and Norwegian, who was the first uh, commander of the base. The stations along the Dew Line were grouped into a series of stations. There would be a main station and several satellite stations. And they would be named after the main station, an abbreviation of the name of the main station. The main station for this series was over here on Baffin Island in Canada at a location called Cape Dyer. Cape Dyer was the main station. They used a portion of that name, D-Y-E, and it became Dye Main, and the satellite stations associated with that main station were Dye 1, 2, 3, and 4. Dye 1 was established on the west coast, Dye 4 on the east coast, and die two and three would be built on the Greenland ice cap between those two locations. Sonderstrom itself is at the end of a long fjord that comes in off the ocean up to a silted, filled area on which the base was built. As you look north from Sonderstrom, uh, from the runway, there's a ridge of mountains that run down along the north side, makes for inter interesting approaches in there in the weather or at nighttime. As we look in the other direction, we see what we call Black Ridge, a big ridge of rock that sticks up on the, on the south side of the base. So this became our staging base. All the material were brought in. They could be brought in by ship and by other aircraft and stationed uh, here at Sonderstrom, staged at Sonderstrom to be flown out to the ice cap. Let's fly out to the ice cap and see what we can expect or experience as we head out from the ice cap, from Sonderstrom, up onto the glacial ice of the Greenland ice cap. As we first head out in just a very few miles, we begin to see the beginnings of the glaciers that feed off the ice cap and wander down through the mountains that uh, feed down uh, to the coastline. Those glaciers, some are faster moving than others. Some of the glaciers from the ice cap up in Jacobshaven area is the most productive glacier uh, for, ice, for icebergs uh, in the world. And many of the icebergs that come into the North Atlantic as hazards to shipping uh, come from the Greenland ice cap and from the Jacobshaven Glacier. So we first get to the edges of the ice cap where it's very glacial. 
If you wanted to do an overland trek, you can see some of the challenges you might be facing with an overland trek uh, getting up over those glaciers. We move, move a little bit further up the glaciers then, the ice begins to get higher and higher and higher, and pretty soon only the peaks of the mountains are sticking up through the ice. The Greenlandic term for these peaks of the mountains that stick up through the ice are nunataks. This particular grouping of rocks is about 25 out miles out from Sonderstrom, and our navigators who are doing their precise calculations and navigation to be sure we got out there would take a look out the side window. If they saw navigator rocks, they knew they were right on course and had, and had no problems finding the ice cap on the dye site. So the ice continues to rise. It rises more and more and more, and eventually it completely covers all of the, of the surface below it. And it continues to rise. It rises up to, in the Die 2 location, 7,600 feet of elevation. At the Die 3 location, 8,300 feet of elevation. By the way, the highest point on the Greenland ice cap is about 11,000 feet, a little north of this line. So we are up on the continuous ice of the ice cap now. We've located the site where we're going to build the station, and construction begins. We see one of our original C-130D models back here in the background. Everything that goes out there goes in the back of a C-130. They excavated down into the ice, put in footings on which the radar site would be built. Now these footings were, were like stilts built down into the ice on a footing, and the building was kind of wrapped around them. So as the ice would build up and the snow would build up, they could jack the building up. And then when they got to a certain point, they'd put more steel on top of that and keep jacking. Well, as time went by, that process worked pretty good, but the substructure would become deformed. And at twice in the life of each of the stations, they were moved on to a new substructure. This shows one of, the, one of those times when the site was relocated onto a whole new substructure. So again, as you can imagine, looking at the perspective of, of the crane and the building and some of the other structures there, a lot of material was transported out there by the C-130D model. Once the sites were built, we didn't need 12 airplanes to sustain them on into the future. So six of the original D models were de-skied. The skis were removed, and they became designated as C-130D-6. So the fleet of airplanes at the time I joined them in Alaska was six C-130Ds and six D-6s. We continue to sustain the sites primarily with food and routine supplies and with the fuel. As General Cooper mentioned, hauling fuel to the site every season was a big part of our mission operation. In 1975, the Air Force determined that uh, this mission would be a good one for the reserve forces of the Air Force and transferred the mission from active duty Air Force in Alaska to the 109th Airlift Wing in Schenectady, New York. Now this is a fairly recent picture of our base with the full fleet of airplanes that we have today. But uh, this was a new mission. The 109th had been flying A model C-130s for a couple of years, so they were familiar with the airplane. And New York State was a good location to put these resources in a one-day flight to and from Sonderstrom, about an eight-hour flight. So the 109th spooled up and began flying uh, these ski birds. In later years, as the C-130D model became older and it had its limitations, 
the Air Force determined that we needed to upgrade our ski, our, our fleet of ski-equipped airplanes, and so we got new aircraft, the LC-130H model airplane. We skipped the E's and went right to H models. At that time, the system for designating the airplanes was changed, and a prefix was used of L, or L uh, for the ski mission that we had, uh, and the LC-130H. You do have another LC-130 airplane here in the museum. Anybody knows what that is? LC-126. How about some of you museum volunteers? You know what your LC-126 is? A Cessna 195 used up in Alaska. That's the first LC-designated airplane that I have been able to find. Maybe some of your researchers might be able to, to find something else. So, not the first, but, but wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? What about this paint scheme? Wait a minute, we're taking this airplane off from the ice and snow. Why does it look like a jungle? Well, we know at that time the Air Force airplanes were all painted like that. So it didn't matter exactly what the mission profile was. So the airplanes arrived camouflage. Well, we can live with that for a while. But it didn't take us too long before we got the airplanes more back to the traditional Arctic markings that we see on most of the airplanes, even here in the museum, that, that uh, had service in the Arctic regions or polar regions, the gray airplane with the orange or red tails and wing tips as part of the standard Arctic markings. So the LC-130H now became our mainstay. I had the unique opportunity in developing the LC-130H, working directly with Lockheed, and that's kind of unusual for a wing to work directly with the manufacturer to update an airplane. Usually it goes through a number of Air Force channels. But in this case, given the uniqueness of the mission and the knowledge that we had at the 109th, we were, work, we were working directly with Lockheed to upgrade the ski mission. I was chief of Stanaval of my unit at the time, so I had the opportunity to do that. We brought a number of recommendations to Lockheed for improving the ski system and improving the airplane's performance in the polar regions. And Lockheed was very receptive, and we implemented a number of those, of those improvements in the ski system. Uh, the airplane already was equipped and continued to be equipped with special systems for extreme cold weather operations. And we'll see some of those in play. In later years, as the threat changed and as our uh, methodology that we had for assessing threats and determining uh, early warning uh, uh, satellite systems and so forth, the dew line itself became obsolete, and the two stations on the Greenland ice cap were closed. That didn't mean we're out of the ski business. We still had customers who needed airlift to the Greenland ice cap and to the sea ice beyond the Greenland ice cap, both military and science support missions. So the 109th continued to use Greenland and Sonderstrom as our staging base for our missions and for our training. We had uh, a number of missions that we flew. The, in the meantime, as Sonderstrom uh, became independent with no longer an Air Force base, it was renamed to the Greenlandic uh, term of Kangalooswak. We had used our Die 2 station as a Ravens training skiway, we called it. It was located where Die 2 was. We supported deep drilling operations at the top of the ice cap. You may have seen some of the news stories about some of the deep drilling operations that are going on. They have drilled core samples from the surface all the way down to bedrock. And by taking these core samples out and studying them, 
they can look at the atmosphere, the environment of our Earth going back about 250 million years. And we can see caught in those layers of compressed ice elements of the atmosphere at that time, the, the concentrations of carbon dioxide and other, other elements in the air. Very important to look at climate change. It's one of the big studies that they're doing up there. And in that, they have found cycles within cycles over the years. Uh, that 250-year history contains about four ice ages, four ice age cycles. So it's very important research to the big issue that we're facing today of global warming. We also conducted operations up to the northern part of Greenland, flying out of Station Nord up to ice stations that we created up on the Greenland ice cap, or on the sea ice north of Greenland. So the 109th remained busy flying in Greenland after the dive sites had closed. Uh, as we mentioned, some of the missions that we've, we've done, uh, both science support, our own training and support, uh, using our training, our Raven training ski way to conduct air crew training, various types of landings that we do, also to conduct our barren land Arctic survival training. Now, we know that the Air Force has a cold weather Arctic survival school up in Alaska, but it's still below the tree line. There's another unique aspect to survival when there's nothing, absolutely nothing, but ice and snow and whatever you brought along with you in the airplane. So we put our crew members and our maintenance personnel out on the ice for three days, give them the stuff that's on the airplane, say, have a nice day, boys and girls, we'll be back in three days to pick you up. No, we, we pay a little more attention to them than that. We put our instructors out there, we watch them carefully, but they do learn what's involved in surviving in these extremely cold temperatures with absolutely nothing but what is on board the airplane. We also, of course, have to concern about fixing the airplane out there when it has problems. So we have developed uh, an excellent crew and, and a team of uh, repair personnel who can go out in the same barren situation, take the necessary tools and equipment, and do major repairs on the airplane in that uh, environment. So there's our intrepid survival students getting ready to go out and, uh, and see how uh, camping on the ice cap can be for a few days. It's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. You think it was cold today, folks, in Dayton? Nah, nah, not even close. Not even close. <laughs> well, in the years that followed, the fact that we had these new airplanes with a lot more capability took, uh, caused us to take a second look at how we might augment the Navy in Antarctica. Now, we looked at the C-130D models. They had been down to Antarctica, but with their limited gross weight and limited fuel and range, they just weren't that effective a system uh, for Antarctica. But with the advent of the LC-130H, we were invited down to begin to augment the Navy. So our intrepid crew members fire up our birds and head south. And they keep going south. And they keep going south. And, well, wait a minute. Let's see. You go from New York to California. You spend the night. You get up, you eat, you get in the airplane, you fly for eight hours, you land in Hawaii, you eat, you go to bed, you get up, you eat, you get in the airplane, you go to Pago Pago in the American Samoa Islands, and so it goes on down to Christchurch and eventually to McMurdo. Five, day, five days of hard flying to get, uh, to get down there. You basically circle around, kind of spiral around the globe. Now, why wouldn't you take the short 
distance, the shortest distance between two points we talked about. We'll visualize that. We have to fly from New York. We will go down uh, through to South America, all the way to South America, to the southern tip of South America. But our staging base at McMurdo is on the other side of the Antarctic continent from the tip of South America. So therefore, we didn't have the range for that last leg without landing at South Pole and refueling. And we always put fuel at South Pole. We don't take it out. Plus, our main staging point prior to the continent is Christchurch, New Zealand. We have cargo and supplies that are brought into Christchurch by other aircraft and by ship, and we pick up supplies to go on down from that point. So that's the route that we take to work our way down to Antarctica. A little bit about Antarctica itself. Huge continent, about the size of the United States and Mexico combined. Can you visualize supporting the United States and Mexico, a geographic area that big, with one main logistic staging base and about 20 sites around the rest of the continent that you would support from that one station? It's like having a staging base in San Antonio, and you're going to support the whole rest of the United States and Mexico from that one airport. So that's kind of what we're facing down there, a huge continent a continent that is described as the highest, the driest, the windiest, the coldest place on Earth. And it is. It is uh, uh, an amazing continent, it's an amazing area of our globe that very, very few people have actually had a chance to visit and, and spend time there. It's an area with, a, with a, a fascinating history of exploration, of extremely difficult uh, challenges that the early explorers faced. Uh, uh, Robert Scott and his ill-fated trip to the South Pole. Uh, Raul Amundsen, who made the first trip and got there a matter of days before Scott did. You, can you imagine his uh, disappointment trekking all the way to the South Pole on foot, only to find that uh, Amundsen had been there just a few days before him. But a fascinating continent. It's also a very high continent. The gray area there represents the part of the continent that's over 10,000 feet in elevation. So the ice cap goes way up. Now think about how much ice, fresh water, is contained in that huge area of over 10,000 feet high, the amount of fresh water. You can understand as these glaciers and, and, and ice shelves begin breaking off that have been in the news lately, why it's a concern. It's a tremendous amount of fresh water trapped in Antarctica. So we uh, fly down from Christchurch. We begin to approach the edges of the, uh, of the continent snow and ice and mountains everywhere you look. More snow and ice and mountains everywhere you look. And you're looking out there and say, boy, I hope these big old engines just keep on churning because I do not want to go down there <laughs> and, and have to make out. But uh, fascinating, fascinating country, beautiful scenery as we proceed on down towards our destination of what we call Mactown, McMurdo Station, our main logistics station on the Antarctic continent. What a place of beauty that is, isn't it? you might want to visit, but it's our home away from home, and we're down there, and we make, the, we make the best of it. And we set up on operations on Willie Field. Now, Willie Field is our main operating airport. It's on the rice, uh, raw ice shelf, and Willie Field is a ski-only operating location. Willie Field is named after one of the CBs in the early Navy uh, trips to Antarctica, who went through, who's a bulldozer operator, a CB, and he went through the ice and lost his life. And so Williams Field is named after him, or Willie Field, as we call it. 
Whitley Field was one of three airports in that area of McMurdo that we use. Whitley Field is back here on the Ross Ice Shelf. It's on, the Ross Ice Shelf is glacial ice that has flowed down from the mountains onto the Ross Sea and spread out in a uniform floating glacier attached to the landmass. As we proceed on out in this direction, out in this area right here, we have the seasonal ice runway. Every year, we take the new seasonal ice that has formed, and they scrape it down to bare ice and create a runway. On that ice runway, wheeled aircraft, including 141s, C5s, C17, has been down there. We can fly in large wheeled aircraft to bring in supplies on the ice runway. The ice runway only lasts about five or six weeks. Then the sun gets high, the ice begins to soften and melt, and we have to abandon the ice runway, move all the operations back to Willie Field. Then at the end of the season, we go down and open up the Pegasus runway. Pegasus is built on glacial ice. And Pegasus has to be covered with snow during the summer season, again, to prevent the sun from penetrating into the ice and creating potholes and melt holes in the ice. So it remains covered with snow until the end of the season when we're pulling everybody out. And then, again, the large wheeled airplanes can come down, land on Pegasus, and assist with the pullout. Now, folks, uh, I, I, this is an, I consider this to be an informal presentation. Uh, I would be happy if anywhere along the line anybody has a question, just don't hesitate to put your hand up. I'll be more than happy to, uh, to answer your questions as we go along. And I have a hand right in the background there. The question was, what are the distances between the runways or between the airports, and how do you travel between those airports? It's about, uh, oh, 10 miles between Willie Field and the ice runway, and looks like perhaps 15 or 17 miles between Willie and Pegasus. The lines that you see here are the roads. You travel by large wheeled or tracked vehicles that can support themselves on the snow. So you can traverse between those locations on, on surface equipment. So that's what we typically do. We start the season here on the ice runway. We have all of our portable mobile buildings. Everything on is portable and mobile on sleds that's, that serves the, the airport. At the end of the season, when we shut down the ice runway, the fuel tanks, all the buildings and everything are towed by bulldozer off of the sea ice and back over to Willie Field, where operations are set up over there. And then once, once that happens and the ice begins to break up here, then the ice runway will eventually break up into open, open water. One of the trickiest parts is what we call the transitions where the road comes off of the hard surface of Ross Island in McMurdo, where McMurdo is located, and you move on to the ice. Those areas often get very churned up and, and, and softened, and there's a lot of maintenance that goes on to keep that transition way from the hard surface onto the, onto the ice. Williamsville is almost sea level. Basically, the depth of the ice that's floating on the sea, so 10, 10 12 feet uh, elevation. So there's our birds all lined up, ready to go to work. Isn't that a pretty shot? Boy, some people have said that they don't think the, the C-130 is that pretty an airplane. I don't know. I don't, what do you think? I think, I think it's a good-looking airplane. Yeah, I think it's a great-looking airplane. 
I had the opportunity to, to, uh, to speak to the, the mayor of Christchurch, New Zealand. We were dedicating one of our airplanes to the city of Christchurch. We put the name on it. And she, in her comments, allowed that she didn't think the C-130 was that pretty of an airplane. Well, we gave her a model, a nice model, one of Lockheed's model, a nice model of the LC-130, and I asked her if she'd put it on her, her desk. And I, would, I was confident that with familiarity, she would come to love the airplane the way we did. And, and I don't know whether she ever did or not. But anyway, it is a good-looking airplane. So we start the loading process. Uh, here's an example of the large wheeled equipment that we can use on, on the ice surface there at Willie Field. We can either load the pallets up one at a time, or we may use a sled and a dozer. Roll the uh, cargo up on the sleds. It's on four, three, six, uh, six uh, Air Force pallets, and just slide it on to the, uh, to the airplane and get it ready to go. Then the sled pulls away, and uh, the sled is built to the bed level of a C-130. It arrived by a ship. We get a cargo ship every year. We have an ice pier, and I'll show you a picture a little bit later on. We open up a channel into uh, McMurdo by icebreaker every year, and we get a, a fuel ship and a cargo ship. So some of the outside stuff is brought in by cargo ship. On, on some occasions, it's broken down into C-130 size loads and brought in by C-130 or C-5. In the early season, we do get C-5s and C-17s in, so we can bring in some outside stuff. Gas it up, get ready to go. Well, this is a good opportunity to kind of begin to look at the ski itself and how it looks and how it's shaped. We can see that the ski kind of forms a U-shape around the main wheels of the airplane. And it is attached to the axle of the main wheel here. Inside this portion here are positioning cylinders that can raise and lower that ski relative to the wheel of the airplane so that we can land on wheels or skis depending on how we position them. Here's a side view of that ski. Weighs about 2,000 pounds. The whole ski system weighs 5,000 pounds, about 2,000 for each main, about 1,000 for the nose. So we're dragging a lot of extra weight around out there to enable us to land on the skis, uh, land on the snow. And then we have the nose ski. It's a smaller component, but it has its unique situation. The main skis, uh, main wheels go up and down so all the ski has to do is travel up and down with the gear. The nose gear rotates forward as it comes up. So we have to have a leveling mechanism to be assured that that ski stays level as it comes up and joins the fairing. You can get a, a, a look here at the fairing that shapes around the ski so that when the skis come up, we have a kind of flared out fairing here and a fairing here. When those skis come up flush to the bottom of the airplane, we lose about 20 knots of true airspeed and cruise to a non-ski airplane. So it doesn't cost us a lot, uh, but it does cost us some in terms of performance. If we're going out to a site where we think we may need some additional thrust to get airborne, we'll strap on the rocket bottles. These are solid, solid propellant rocket bottles. We still use them operationally in our, in our mission. They're uh, inspected and mounted by our, our maintenance personnel. Uh, they're checked over by our flight engineer. Uh, who will arm the bottles if we're going to be using them on that particular mission, and we'll take them out to our takeoff location. The, the bottles are used most often when we anticipate adverse takeoff conditions, like soft, deep snow or an extremely high-altitude location. We go to some locations on the, on the, uh, uh, in Antarctica that are over 13,000 feet in elevation, so we, we need a lot of extra performance to get off, and we'll shoot the bottles uh, for our takeoff. It gives us 
about 15 seconds of additional thrust, and we, we said it's about equivalent to one more engine on the airplane. So if we need the rocket bottles, we'll mount them on. And of course, you have to have your smiling, happy crew getting ready to go fly this, this mission. What a great-looking group of young folks, aren't they? Yeah. Okay, off we go. We're sliding along on the main skis and, and nose ski now. When we get to about 65 knots and the elevator becomes effective, we'll bring the nose of the airplane up, lift this nose ski off the surface, reduce the drag of the nose ski, continue to slide on the main skis up to about 95 knots, at which time we'll lift off. That's a standard ski takeoff. Off we head from McMurdo. We're heading out across the Ross Ice Shelf now, getting ready to climb the glaciers through the Transantarctic Mountains. Well, you can think back to, uh, to Scott and his crew as they're man-hauling sledges up that glacier all the way up to South Pole Station. What an arduous task that was. But off for us in our C-130s, the old bird just climbed right up to altitude and off we go. Now, sometimes the weather's good, sometimes it's not so good. So if the weather's not so good and we have to fly an instrument approach to our ski landing location, then we have a methodology that we use for flying that instrument approach. We use our self-contained navigation that we, system that we have in the airplane to position ourselves geographically. It's the SKINS system that's a combination of GPS and inertial navigation. But our navigator directs our approach. We can do what we call an ARA, an airborne radar approach. The navigator gives us just like a GCA, but from the airplane and directs azimuth and recommended altitudes for descent for the flight crew as they go on in. It's a crew effort. Everybody in the crew is involved in the process. Each crew member has a, has a duty to do and a job to do, and if it all works together, the mission works good. Let me see if I can show you an example uh, of how that, how that will work out for you. Fun, isn't it? Don't you think that doesn't look like a fun thing to do? Yeah, that's great. That's great fun. It certainly is a crew effort. You heard all the crew members giving input into the pilot as they flew the approach, and duties and responsibilities uh, changed. Uh, there was a whole lot of wheezing going on. It sounded like Darth Vader there, didn't it? This is a landing up at the summit of the Greenland ice cap at over 11,000 feet. Above 10,000 feet, we wear oxygen when we're flying our approach. The pilot is on hot mic. 
So you're hearing, hearing all his breathing going out. The other crew members are also on oxygen, but they're using their, their mic buttons uh, for their communication. Yes, sir, there was a question. Do we have an IRS or an instrument approach? No, sir, we don't. It's all self-contained. There's no ground-based navigation at all. It's all internal in the airplane. So, yeah, that's a lot of fun. So it's a real crew effort getting into the station. Well, let's get back to South Pole now. We say we're gonna, we've flown a successful approach on this day. Gee, it's a beautiful day in, in Antarctica, so we can slide right on down. We see these series of flags right here. Those are called our lead-in flags. They run two miles out from the station. They're black nylon flags on bamboo poles that are arranged in kind of a cross pattern like that so you can see them from either side or from directly aligned with them. And it helps the pilot do his final visual alignment if he can't see the, the surface uh, itself. The skiway itself, here's the station. Here's South Pole Station, all the associated equipment and stuff that's down there. Kind of a bird's eye view looking down on, on, the, uh, on the skiway. How do you prepare that skiway? What do you do to it? Well, not a whole lot. You put a drag behind a bulldozer and you kind of run it up and down and run it up and down. And as you do that, you knock off the tops of these sastrugis. That's what we call these little waves that you see on the natural surface. The, 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 the little wave action, it creates these sastrugis. And they can be quite high in amplitude. They can be two or three, four feet high in amplitude. And they get wind toughened and very hard. So if you start smacking into the, these things on a landing, they can really do an impact on the airplane. So basically we're looking to smooth those sastrugis out. Another thing that happens is as you disturb the snow with the dragging action, you change the crystal structure of the snow and you cause it to bond. Uh, I don't know how much snow you get here in the Dayton area, but if, you, if, you, if that snow plow comes down the road and rolls a nice berm of snow into your driveway, if you get out there and shovel it right now, it's not too bad. You wait a day, go out and shovel it the next day, and it's hard as a rock, isn't it? Yeah. That's what has actually happened, is the crystal structure of the snow has been disturbed and it's bonded. And so that, that happens on the surface here as well. We get a bonding, bonding which toughens up the surface of the snow just from that dragging action. This skiway is 14,000 feet long. That matches up some of our SAC uh, runways we have around the country here. And some days you need every bit of it. Altitudes uh, at South Pole Station is uh, 10, four, 10 four, I think it is, 10,400. However, you, Oftentimes, because of the pressure systems up there, the pressure altitude is usually up around 12 or 13. So we do wear oxygen up there uh, on our, when we're flying our approaches. Now you get out and you hike around South Pole a little bit, and you'll know what altitude it is <laughs> in no time at all. <laughs> I used to make quite regular trips out to South Pole Station. I'd meet with the station engineer as we were planning some of the upgrades and improvements to the ground handling operations for the airplane, and I'd spend a, a day or two out there with the, with the engineer and We'd go hiking across there, and he'd be uh, striding out, and I'm getting about 100 yards behind him and uh, wheezing and carrying on, and you can't sleep. The first night, you cannot sleep. You get this oxygen deprivation headache. There's nothing you can do about it. You have to acclimate, and it takes days. So there's the, the end of the skiway. There's another little bird's eye view. Here's our skiway once again down here, and here's the South Pole Station. It really gets to be quite an operation, quite a spread out deal. Here's the old station, which is the dome that many of you have seen pictures of. This is the new station that's being built. We'll talk about that some more. These, this is the summer camp where people live in outdoor or in tent type structures in the summertime. These are building and work areas down here. And this is cargo, lines and lines of cargo, either stuff coming in or stuff going out. All the trash goes out. Nothing stays uh, on at the station. 
So anything that comes out, comes in, will eventually go back out by C-130. Okay, our bird has arrived. We turned off. We pulled up here. We're parking right here at our offload location. We have a piece of equipment coming out there to, to conduct the offload. If we have any spare fuel, we'll be hooking up a hose right here and offloading that fuel. Most of the fuel delivery to the station is done on individual sorties out there. Every flight that takes off from McMurdo is full gross weight. If we're not full of cargo, we fill it up with fuel. We download all but the fuel that we need to get back to McMurdo at the station. So through the course of the year, we end up doing much of the fuel resupply incidental to our other cargo uh, missions to and from the, the, for the station. Keep it as efficient <coughs> as possible. And here's one of those sleds in use again. The bulldozer pushing the sled up behind the airplane and we'll do the offload. There's our fuel line once again. It goes underground and then travels under the ice over to the, where the storage tanks are located. And no trip to South Pole would be complete without visiting the, visiting the ceremonial pole. There's the South Pole. These are the flags of the signatory nations to the Antarctic uh, Treaty. And uh, everybody has to go out there and get their picture taken. But of course, us old Antarctic hands, we know that that's not the real South Pole. This is the real South Pole. It, it is. It is the actual geographic location of the South Pole as noted by the U.S. Geological Survey. The actual South Pole moves. It has been moving across the ice over the years, and it has moved a couple of miles since we have been keeping record of it when the station was opened in, uh, in the early 70s. It's keeping on going. Eventually, it'll go underneath the station and, and keep right on going, I suppose. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this 109th Airlift Wing who is going to be taking over this mission. Uh, we have the mission of the LC-130s to both poles. We've been talking about that. But a little bit about this 109th Airlift Wing, we also do combat missions in support of a range of Air Force missions. We also have a commitment to our local, state, and community. We are a National Guard component of New York State as well as a reserve, reserve component of the Air Force. So we have that commitment as well and as to a local community. Yes, sir. Yeah, the question was about fuel additives for the, uh, for the fuel for those temperatures. Yes, we use a, a fuel grade of AN8. It's like JP8 with special ad additives for the cold temperatures. That fuel is used in everything. It's used in the bulldozers, the power plants, the airplanes, everything. Every diesel uh, operating piece of equipment, including the airplanes, uses the same fuel. Yes, sir. What's the coldest temperature that I've operated in? Uh, pretty cold. Down about 60 below is about as cold as we like to work. That, that gets to be a bit much. 40 below is, is a good operating temperature for us. Uh, 40 below, between 40 below and 20 below, maybe zero, between 40 below and zero are good operating temperatures. We don't really want it to get too much warmer than that because the snow begins to soften up. So 40 below is good. We can operate down to 60 below. Less than 60 below, it's really problematic. Uh, not only for the equipment, for the people. The risk to people at those kind of temperatures is extreme. If you get injured or hurt or disabled and, and can't get to assistance right away, you're, you're, you're in some trouble at 60 below, out exposed. Yes, sir, over here. GPS performs well. The system that we have in our airplane is a combination GPS and INS system. And it works pretty good as long as you keep the system up and aligned. When we run into problems is when you get to the South Pole, if you shut down, and shut down all your electronics and all your avionics, and then bring it back up again, the GPS can tell you at the South Pole, you're at the South Pole, but it can't tell you what direction to go to get anywhere. 
it, it gets a little confused. It gets a little confused. So we, we put in the, the last heading that we had when we shut it down. We put that in. We, we force it into the system. You fly about 10 miles away from the South Pole Station. The GPS gets a series of fixes. It aligns itself, and then it, and it's good to go. But uh, it, it works pretty good as long as you keep the system up and operating. In later years, the Navy elected to withdraw from the U.S. Antarctic Program support, and uh, the National Science Foundation, Foundation asked us to take over the mission from the Navy. So we began what would be a three-year transition where the Navy did less and less, stood down, and then the 109th built up. We had to bring in a lot of new personnel. We acquired some of the Navy airplanes and built up our fleet. So we took a, went through a three-year transition, and then uh, we, in the spring of 1999, the 109th, uh, that's me in the middle of that fuzzy picture there, uh, was piped aboard and took over the operation from, uh, from the Navy. And that was great. We were pretty happy, and things were going well. And then that summer, we're sitting back uh, between seasons, and we get some bad news from the South Pole. It seems that a member of the Winter Over crew is seriously ill. The National Science Foundation wants to take a look at the possibility of a winter operation and do a risk assessment of it, which we did. The risks were enormous, tremendous cold. We're talking 80 below now of temperatures or colder. Uh, dark, I mean completely dark in the winter season. There is no daylight at all. It's completely dark. And once the season is done and everything is pulled out, there is no infrastructure. The fuel systems are all put away, put to bed. The runways are no longer maintained. The skiways are no longer maintained. There's no infrastructure support at all. So if you go, you're on your own. So the, the risks were enormous for a midwinter uh, attempt at a landing. Uh, but there was another option, and that was an airdrop. So a 141 conducted an airdrop in the midwinter with some medical supplies for our station person that was ill. At that time, we didn't know who that person was. Well, we watched the patient's progress. The National Science Foundation medical team evaluated the patient's progress on a regular basis. And then we came to learn that the, the patient was the station doctor. She had found a lump in her breast, and she was self-administering. She had done a self-biopsy, made slides, had transmitted those slides back to the state so they could evaluate it. They airdropped the medical supplies was chemo equipment, the pumps and the paraphernalia and the chemicals and everything that she needed to self-administer chemo treatment during that time. Well, fortunately, it seemed to be working, and she was holding her own. So the National Science Foundation told us, looks like she's doing okay. Let's wait until the regular season opening, and we'll evacuate her out on the first flight. Then she took a turn for the worse, and we had to, we were asked to evacuate her as soon as possible. Dan, I believe you have another uh, video you're going to help me with here. For a rescue, Dr. Jerry Nielsen, a National Science Foundation physician who has a lump in her breast. She's in Antarctica, working at a scientific research station thousands of miles from the nearest cancer treatment center. Two U.S. Air National Guard transport planes, specially equipped for a perilous landing in the Antarctic, are standing by in Christchurch, New Zealand, waiting for a break in the weather so they can pick up Dr. Nielsen and drop off her replacement. The plane's fueled and ready to go, and as soon as we get the crew, we're going to blast on over and uh, put some ADO on the plane and uh, make our way down to the South Pole.
Don't you like Joe's attitude? He's got it. We will uh, provide her any care that she needs and transport her uh, to her final destination. I feel real good about this. Yep, today's the day. Clear skies in Christchurch and clear enough in Antarctica for the Mercy Mission to start today. Two C-130 cargo planes that will make the eight-hour flight to the main American base on the coast at McMurdo, with one of them, weather permitting, going on to retrieve a parent cancer victim, Dr. Jerry Nielsen, and bring her back out. Mission Commander Colonel Graham Pritchard said the extreme cold is still a factor, the enemy that can cripple his aircraft. We often characterize this mission after flying into the poles as being as close as you can get to combat without somebody shooting at you. The hostile situation that we face is the environment. It will be 20 minutes on the ground with engines running at the nearly two-mile high south pole. Less ground time means less of a chance of mechanical parts freezing up. A U.S. military cargo plane has successfully picked up Jerry Nielsen from a U.S. research station in Antarctica. She was then flown to New Zealand and will return to the United States as soon as possible. Those who flew today's rescue mission say the landing tested their limits and those of the aircraft. It was uh, out of the limits that we would like normal crews to be operating on or normal operations. People just very pleased that uh, we were able to, to get in and, and get her out and uh, they were just uh, uh, a happy group of people to, to see her on her way home. The crew that had flown her to safety from the South Pole posed in celebration. Theirs was the earliest flight ever to the absolute bottom of the world. The temperature of minus 51 degrees was just warm enough to make it. Wow, great, a great video. A, a great highlight of the job well done by, by the men and women of the 109th. Uh, it was a real test, being the, the new guys on the block to, uh, to launch and do that mission. It was getting a tremendous amount of attention and notoriety all over the world. Uh, many of you may recall seeing the news coverage of that, of that mission at the, at the time. It was quite a, quite a challenging mission. It took a lot of resources to do that, but uh, we got her out, and to our knowledge today, I know for a, a period of time she underwent treatment back here, and at last report she was cancer-free. Uh, so that's, that's, the good, that's the good news. The mission was fully successful.